and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw, and here is my co-host, Morgan Lee Davies. Hello. So this week we watched Star Trek IV The Voyage Home, aka The One with the Whales. Concluding the trilogy that began with The Wrath of Khan, it stars the original Enterprise crew in a time-travelling comedy set in 1980s San Francisco on a mission to bring two humpback whales to the 23rd century. So thank you very much to our Patreon subscriber Lee for requesting this. I'm very happy to be discussing this film because, as regular listeners may know, I love Star Trek. Morgan is more of a Star Trek enjoyer. She joined me for a Wrath of Khan episode and has seen one other classic Star Trek film. So welcome to this one, which I believe is by far one of the highlights. I found it very enjoyable and entertaining. And not to linger on this, but one of the key enjoyable things about watching a mainstream popcorn film from the 1980s, even like a weird one like this, is that they were shot on film in real locations. So it's like, oh, look at these humans walking on streets. Like This was in fact a groundbreaking move for Star Trek because the previous two were mostly on sound stages, but they did go to real San Francisco. Yeah, and... San Francisco is a tricky place to shoot because of the hills, and it doesn't get used a ton now. There obviously are some major classics, including What's Up, Doc, the um, Peter Bogdanovich romantic comedy that we talked about around a month ago. But I found it really fun just seeing San Francisco in the 80s in this, obviously in a very like family-friendly way. <laughs> but um, yeah, I just found the movie really amusing and interesting on an intellectual level as a time capsule of what was on people's minds from a socio-political angle in this era. Yeah. Because, as you mentioned, this is the Star Trek movie with the whales, which I was not previously aware existed. I didn't know there was a one with the whales. And watching it, I was just like, this is Save the Whales propaganda. (laughs) Like, fully. Which, I mean, I support, obviously, but it's so clearly influenced by that cultural moment, which was still going on when we were little kids. Like, I remember that. So I just found that really fascinating. We'll talk a bit more about this at the end, but it's kind of wild how unique the Star Trek franchise is as like a big A-list franchise, because they're just in this position where they're like, let's just make a light comedy with a bunch of middle-aged people. And um, Leonard Nimoy, obviously the actor who plays Spock, was the director for this. He also directed the previous film, The Search for Spock. And he was instrumental in the writing process too. And literally his philosophy for making this film was no dying, no fighting, no shooting, no photon torpedoes, no phaser blasts, and no stereotypical bad guy. (laughs) Which leaves you with a film which is mostly just a bunch of people going on a quirky road trip around San Francisco. They're just like, oh, we've got to find some whales. And that's like 70% of the film. (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, I was thinking watching it too, which... I remember thinking about The Wrath of Khan, which is obviously made before this, that the unique thing about this franchise that it just went on forever, right? And they didn't recast them. I mean, obviously, they proceeded to then make all these other TV shows and then eventually rebooted the original characters in 2008 or 2009. But they're all just kind of old. <laughs> they're all just like very middle-aged and like have a lot of wrinkles and just look like aggressively normal people and that's very refreshing given that 
most films throughout the history of Hollywood, and especially right now where everyone is, like, so incredibly manicured to look perfect and, like, unrealistically perfect at a middle and older age. It's nice to just be like, oh, here's some middle-aged guys and a, a few women who are just carrying on as the stars of, like, really big movies. <laughs> like, it's, it's very novel. Yeah, and, like, as with all of the films, because there's only one woman in the main crew, they always have to, like, put a woman in, which, like, still happens in the new reboot movies with Chris Pine and stuff. But in this, she is, like, technically Shatner's love interest. I mean, she is younger, but she's not, like, young, young, and she's the whale expert they get in touch with once they get to 1980s San Francisco. And it's like, yeah, she's a love interest, but you kind of feel like the movie understands that this is almost straining credulity. I found it really funny. I mean, I thought this about the other ones I've seen too. That like it it feels to me like everyone but Shatner knows yes. that this is a joke. <laughs> <laughs> Which you know, sometimes you just have to cater to the star. Yeah. I was saying to you via text the other day that like when he's flirting in quotes on screen with a, a woman, he like makes this face, this this kind of, like, self-satisfied face that's supposed to be, like, sexually attractive, and it is so not at all. And yet these women are like, oh, I met you 30 minutes ago, but I'm going to abandon my entire life to, like, travel through space with you, or whatever the case may be. And it's just so hilariously implausible, but... It's so much so that it feels like the movies are acknowledging that fact. I mean, there is actually a pretty marked transition between the original series Kirk and the movie Kirk. And like, obviously Shatner changed appearance like a lot. He aged a lot kind of in that 20 year period. And part of the reason why he works as this sort of traditional leading man in the TV series is just like, he's conventionally handsome. Like that's part of why he was hired, obviously. But as he kind of enters middle age and is just like an average looking pudgy middle-aged guy, he's also like his performance is so kind of goofy and over the top and everyone else's performances are much more measured. And sometimes that works in the movies and other times it doesn't. And it just doesn't work when you're kind of positioning him with a woman who basically just seems like a normal person. Because <laughs> it's like, well, what what is it? Like, I mean, he doesn't feel like creepy. He just feels like really kind of strange in this movie because he's the whole joke of the film is that it's a fish out of water comedy. And he and Spock are the characters who are like paired up. Each of the the main crew members are kind of like in a little squad where they're traveling around San Francisco having their own little subplots. And he and Spock, who is wearing like white robes, so he looks like a hippie, are meeting up with this woman. And he's kind of hitting on this woman, but she also is just like, finds him funny because like he doesn't understand anything. Like he doesn't know references. Like he doesn't know how much like a dollar is worth. (laughs) It's just completely ridiculous, right? And you're like, well, she's kind of humoring him and he does seem sweet and harmless. And there is like a weird fun mystery for her to look into. And then of course, like when the film ends, I'm sure this doesn't count as a spoiler. The film came out in 1986, but like she basically ditches him right at the end of the movie because like he brings her to the future and she's like, well, I'm going to have my own adventures now. And it's like, yeah, she would. (laughs) right and obviously like his rapport with Nimoy is so much better than with any of these like random women of course like the emotional core of the movie is that but um yeah just to kind of go back a bit like a bit of backstory in this film itself yes please do so as I mentioned in the intro this is the third film in a trilogy like the first Star Trek movie Star Trek the motion picture 
is obviously beloved by many fans, but is also famously a dud. It came out kind of in the post-2001 A Space Odyssey era, and they tried to make Star Trek A Space Odyssey, and it did not work. It was very humorless. And then the second film is The Wrath of Khan, which is, of course, amazing. And that kicks off this new trilogy, which is kind of the core trilogy of original series movies in the 70s and 80s, where you have The Wrath of Khan, which ends with Spock dying. Then you have The Search for Spock, which, you know, what does what it says in the tin and that gave Nimoy a chance to direct because obviously he wasn't on screen for most of the film and then this movie is kind of concluding that like serious midpoint where it's like well Spock's back let's just do a fun comedy and like so many films of this ilk it went through about a gajillion different script drafts there's four credited screenwriters Nimoy has a story credit and the two kind of main writers are Harvey Bennett and Nicholas Mayer, who is one of the main writers in the franchise, like he is amazing. He's still working on Star Trek now. He did The Wrath of Khan. And kind of during this development process, there was a period where they were going to give Eddie Murphy a big role, but he didn't like it. So that role turned into the girl role. There was also a long period when Shatner didn't want to do the movie. So they gave him $2.5 million and then they, they retooled the Shatner free script to have another Kirk-centric story. During one of the periods when there was no Shatner availability, they drafted a whole movie that was going to be like a semi-reboot that was focusing on Starfleet Academy, which is always a popular choice with the studios because it means they can just bring in a bunch of 20-year-olds. Obviously a popular choice. But honestly, I have so much respect for Nimoy as a director. I think he's a fascinating individual. He's very creatively well-rounded. Like at this point in his career, obviously kind of his public image is very much like to do with his conflict with his role as Spock because, you know, he'd had this long history of acting before he was cast as Spock. He was an acting teacher. He was a theatre performer. He did a lot of Yiddish theatre, I think. And after he was cast as Spock, he like became Spock. And like in the 70s, he wrote a memoir that was literally called I Am Not Spock. <laughs> and then he like did a bunch of other projects. And I think 10 years later, by this point, he'd mellowed out a lot. You know, he'd done a lot of photography. He was a musician. He was a writer. He had like loads of friends in the industry, not in the sense that he was really connected with higher ups, but like genuine friendships with people who had just like unusual jobs. You know, he was sorted to direct a movie. The Search for Spock is a competent film. It's not as good as this one, but like well done him. And then immediately after this, he made Three Men and a Baby. So like he was a solid commercial director in the 80s. Then 10 years later, he wrote his memoir, I Am Spock, which is kind of talking all about how he actually accepted his role as Spock. And it's really interesting to read interviews with him later in his life where he kind of talks about his relationship because I remember reading that second memoir and like literally the intro to this memoir is written from the perspective of Spock and first person, like he is Spock talking to himself. And he's spoken about how he spent so much time in this role that like, he adopted Spock's mannerisms and his kind of logical thought processes would become like this second voice in his head and not in a sort of obnoxious method way, just like that was such a huge part of his life. And like when you constantly have people coming up to you saying you're Spock. And I think kind of the difference there is like when that happens to him, he was a very thoughtful and philosophical guy who obviously did have some like dark points where he was like, stop fucking calling me Spock. But ultimately Spock is a very positive character and he had a really kind of symbiotic relationship with that. Whereas with William Shatner, who was naturally always a bit more of a self-centered person, he was given a character who was just like, here's this action hero who's the cool protagonist. And although I think the movies do like a great job of deepening that character, and I fucking love Captain Kirk, he's an amazing character, and Shatner's performance is completely central to that. 
Like Shatner, you know, his brain is not like on the same level there. So it's like when people are like, hey, it's Captain Kirk. He's like, yeah, I'm Captain Kirk. You know, it's like, that's how you get the movie Galaxy Quest is what I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I texted you recently because I bought a like used copy of a museum book like that you would buy at an exhibition for some exhibition about like American and British artists and writers in Italy in the 19th century that was inscribed to Leonard Nimoy. That was his personal copy that had been sold after his death. Like, I just wanted the book. It's out of print. And that's the kind of thing that I assume he just had in the house. And I don't envision William Shatner's uh, domicile in that way. I mean, during Nimoy's like periods of financial stability, and kind of older age, he was like, I'm going to produce a very serious documentary about the Holocaust, you know, <laughs> which was not like Shatner was like having sci-fi novels ghostwritten for him to star in a TV show about like a space yeah. cop. Yeah. I mean, Godspeed, it takes all sorts, but we all know which of these two men was nicer to be around and everyone talks about what a pleasure it was to be directed by Nemo. Yes. So let's get further into the actual plot of the movie. Which is quite amusing, because as a result, one presumes, of Nimoy being like, there's not going to be a bad guy. The conflict is introduced by a glowing orb that is sending a message to Earth that is, like, destroying all technological communications and, like, causing storms to erupt, etc., etc. And it's never explained, like, what this thing is or why it's doing what it's doing. It just is a glowing orb. which is basically just what the first movie was, except the first movie didn't have a fun hour and a half in the middle with comedy. It was just all orb. (laughs) So they figure out that what sounds like, basically, like, drone noises, if you adjust the frequency... To what it would sound like underwater, it's like Humpback Will song. And that this probe is trying to make contact with these, with humpback whales, which have been extinct for like 200 years. And so they decide to go back in time to the late 20th century to try to find some. And the sort of emotional subplot running alongside of this is that this is after they've found Spock in the movie that I haven't seen, but <laughs> but he's not, like, relearning how to be himself, and so he's sort of reverted back to, like, earlier Vulcan behavior, as opposed to the more casual version of himself yeah. that we've seen more recently. I mean, the previous movie is really delightful because you may have noticed there's, like, not an enormous amount of McCoy in this film. Like, he's a supporting character, but in the previous film, McCoy is really central because the whole concept is that um, Spock's soul has been inserted into McCoy's body so that actor gets to play both Spock and McCoy like having an identity crisis and they have to transfer Spock's Katra from his body into like a new fetus body and have it grow up. (laughs) Sure. Sounds normal. I love Star Trek. (laughs) So uh, Spock is doing things like calling Kirk by his official title and you know doesn't understand how to access his feelings Yada, yada, yada. And this is disorienting for him and also for everyone else, especially Kirk, obviously, who is just, like, sad about his best friend. So that's happening while they're also like, we have to find some humpback whales to transport to the past, which is obviously quite a task because humpback whales, famously, quite large. And they all go on their little journeys in San Francisco to find various components 
of how to make that happen. So some of them go off and find basically like really thick plexiglass to make a tank. Some of them go to like steal nuclear power from a Navy ship. And Kirk and Spock, as you said, go to this marine rehabilitation facility where this woman is working. And they conveniently happen to have two, two humpback whales there that are about to be released back in to the ocean. And this woman is having a crisis because on the one hand, they have to be free. And on the other hand, the evil whalers will immediately kill them because they're bad. And this is really where the Save the Whales stuff. <laughs> yes, there were comes like in. multiple children's movies in the 80s and 90s that are like, my best friend who is a whale needs to be free. And it's just like they've kind of done a find and replace with a horse girl film, but it's because of ecology now. I mean, look, when I was five years old, I would have loved this movie. I mean, I enjoyed it very much now, but I would have been like, Great. you would have been like, why aren't there whales. more whales? Exactly. I was full on like every variety of whale. I could recite them. I could identify them. I was fascinated. <laughs> I was telling you before we started recording that my mother's college roommate, Laura, worked for or volunteered for, I'm not sure, Greenpeace, I think, around this time and brought me some like Save the Whale stickers when I was five. And I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. I can't believe you're helping save the whales. <laughs> like. And my dad at some trade show for for his banker job once brought me back uh, a stuffed whale that was about the size of a human person that we had in our house for many years. That you was... see, this all makes the development process of this film doubly hilarious because yeah. at the point when they like decided they were going to do a villain-free ecology-themed movie... They, like, did not immediately go to whales, which you would assume they'd be like, oh, whales are what we're going to go for. They yeah. were, like, developing ideas that were to do with, like, oil drilling, or they had more obscure animals that just weren't as photogenic. And then Nimoy supposedly was like, we should do whales instead. Those are depressing and nerdy. He, like, heard some whale song or something and was like, this is much more engaging. And it's like, I cannot believe that whales were not the number one stopping point on this journey. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was Googling... Like, when did Save the Whales start? And watching this, I was like, it absolutely has to be before this movie was made. It's so transparent. And indeed, this was made in the 80s sometime. And Save the Whales started in 77. So there you go. And there's also weird Cold War stuff with the military going on. And like a very subplot kind of way but that combined with the ecology stuff combined with the fact that they're making such a big deal that it's the 80s even though it's obviously the current day when this movie came out just makes for like quite a viewing experience <laughs> you're like oh my god <laughs> i mean famously like one of the great comedy sequences is when chekhov who is the russian crew member he has been sent on like the submission to go and get some bits of like nuclear whatever and of course he gets like arrested by the fbi and questioned because he's Russian. And he's like, show me the nuclear vessels. <laughs> and he has this like, who's on first routine where like, he just doesn't understand what the FBI is mad about. Cause he clearly isn't like it's, a student of this period of American history. It's the Navy. Cause he's on the Navy ship. Oh so, yeah, of course. So they are stealing the nuclear power and Uhura gets sent back with the like, basically television clicker that has the nuclear power inside of it because that's how 
physics works. And um, they have to do it one at a time because, like, the ship's power is getting lower. And then Chekhov is stuck on this military ship that is also conveniently called the Enterprise. (laughs) And they find him and he just fully is like, well, of course I'm a graduate of Starfleet and I don't know what you're talking about. And they're just like, he's clearly Russian, but, like, what's He doesn't have threatening vibes. Like, he's Walter Koenig. (laughs) And then he just, like, throws something at them and runs away in, like, comical fashion and falls off the boat onto a concrete dock, which is not great. Yeah. I mean, I just, I love him in this movie because, like, obviously he's he's a really fun actor. Like, all of the lead cast members in Star Trek have so many marvellous qualities. Sulu has a great role in this, which is just being cool and having the best outfit, which I really respect. At one point he gets to fly a helicopter, but primarily I remember him wearing a really cool cape. But with Chekhov, I think... In the original series, he was kind of the least well-rounded of the main crew. They added him in in the second season. And sort of his role was like he was meant to be the young one that was meant to appeal to the Beatlemania teens. And I'm I'm not really sure why, because it's like he, he wasn't like super hot, but he was in the general sort of floppy hair demographic. But then once the movies came along, they were just like, well, this guy actually is a pretty good actor and is really good at comedy. So they just give him some fun roles. <laughs> yeah and obviously this is a period when the country is trying to have the cold war cool off obviously this character has been around for decades and star trek has always been very progressive but it's interesting in the specific context of this moment to see this kind of like absurdist comedy over over the Cold War being depicted, right? Because it's such a joke. Like, it's so stupid. And the Americans aren't being depicted as idiots. They're kind of just like, what is going on? And, like, he's so clearly not threatening, which is a larger cultural comment. (laughs) I mean, it's definitely interesting to kind of look at this and then look at Star Trek VI, because, like, this is number four. It ends that trilogy that's, like, really kind of self-contained. Then Star Trek V is the one that Shatner directed. (laughs) Oh my, yes. <laughs> Which I've not rewatched in many years, but does involve Captain Kirk, like, fighting God. <laughs> I think it starts off with, like, Kirk in rocket boots. Um, I will rewatch it at some point, sure. but famously, famously very, um, very Shatner-esque. But the sixth one is one that you and I watched uh, previously, which is much, much more serious. And it's, like, very explicitly a Cold War film, but more allegorically, because it's filmed in 1991. And it's clearly a kind of post-Soviet film, and it's about... Starfleet and the Klingons kind of negotiating this peace settlement. I mean, it's a great movie and it's like a really serious drama with great dramatic roles for the lead actors. And that is very much like the vibe of 91 versus this vibe of 1986, one year before or after all the like bunch of time travel comedy movies came out, like Back to the Future and stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, we should talk about the fact that this is like an obsession I mean, it's a micro-obsession, but it definitely is an obsession of Hollywood at this period in a way that I find quite interesting. I mean, Peggy Sue Got Married is right around this time. Back to the Future is right around this time. There's this movie. I feel like there's another major one that I am forgetting, but obviously Bill and Ted is a few years later. And the, like, desire to escape reality (laughs) feels very potent in these films, but this one is interesting because it's people coming to the present, which is kind of a fun sort of flip. 
I mean, that type of like time travel movie, it's very much like normie time travel. And this is actually the most normie of the Star Trek films because some of them are really nerdy. All of them are character focused, which is the big strength of Star Trek. But the kind of things like Back to the Future, like no one is like, oh, this movie is sci-fi for nerds, right? Like it's an extremely mainstream film. All of the time travel takes place in just like a real life environment and all of the story is just like very comedy and romance driven, you know? And that's where this is coming from because like it's one of the more kind of high concept Star Trek films and simultaneously the most closely resembling just like a mainstream blockbuster. Well, what, I mean, do you have examples of like hardcore sci-fi that was doing time travel before or during this period that was different? Because I'm thinking of something like Primer, but that's like 25 years later. I mean, honestly, in in terms of serious sci-fi, I can't really think of any... Like, that's sort of the point. Like, this is the point where the dominant time travel movies are, like, the fun ones, right? And, like, obviously, in the 80s, there were kind of less indie sci-fi movies than you'd maybe get in, like, the 2000s, where there was, like, a huge influx. But, you know, it's all the sort of Groundhog Day and stuff. That's that's what I was thinking. I was like, I knew there was something, some other like major film to do with time bending in a weird way. It's obviously Groundhog Day, the most famous example of all time. Indie sci-fi movies basically don't exist as a concept at this point, right? Like, I'm sure there are individual examples, but like, broadly speaking, no. And I'm sure there are like weird pulp novels from the 50s and 60s that have like strange time travel plots. But I think... Even framing it as like, well, but this is time travel for normal people. Like, I don't know that. No, exactly. Well, that's kind of the point I'm making. Yeah, it's like, it's just, it's like more in the realm of like romantic comedies, you know? Yeah, I mean, Peggy Sue Got Married is not a science fiction film. It just happens to have time travel in it and ditto Groundhog Day. But that, I mean, Groundhog Day is more structurally inventive obviously than these other things that we're mentioning including this movie but it allows you to do something structurally strange in the film i mean kind of famously one of the most iconic original series star trek episodes is city on the edge of forever which almost this film is echoing because that's a time travel episode where kirk and spock go through like a time vortex and end up in historical earth they're in like 20th century earth and then kirk falls in love with like an earth woman it's an amazing episode you should definitely watch it morgan it's a banger but um it kind of felt like this is like well we're going to do that because we know that was like a real winner but it's going to be fun this time (laughs) (laughs) well also i mean the the one that's sticking out to me is and, and we can move on from this, but like, have you ever seen La Jetée? Yes, I have. In fact, I was thinking yeah. in my mind, I was thinking like, oh yeah. yes, what's the, what's the serious independent uh, time travel movie? And it is La Jetée, which is, um, it's like what, it's like half an hour, 40 minutes long. And it's a black and white experimental French film, which is more of a slideshow. Like you see individual images and the story is told in a voiceover. It's, it's an amazing film and um, you should watch it. It's very efficient to watch because it's nice wee under an hour length. Yeah, and it's clearly a like about nuclear war. Yeah, it's quite disturbing. Yeah, it like don't watch it before you go to bed. <laughs> yeah, it's not fun. City on the Edge of Forever is fun. This art film about clearly like devastating apocalyptic world-ending time travel, not so fun. 
But it was also the inspiration for 12 Monkeys. Yeah. Which is completely different, but shares certain things in common, which is interesting. But to get back to this film, I think it's kind of fusing nerdy Star Trek with the sort of mainstream Back to the Future Peggy Sue Got Married tone. And the fact that so much of it's shot on location, as you said, which obviously was not typical for them. And that it's so directly engaging with a current political issue in environmentalism and the Save the Whales thing, even if it's not explicitly naming them, I think is interesting. I mean, there's like a little video they show in the museum at the whale sanctuary of whalers killing and skinning and gutting whales that's really graphic and upsetting, which is how you know that the movie is propaganda. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't use that word negatively. Again, I support saving all the whales because I love the whales from my childhood. But it truly is like, let's linger on these shots of the blubber being peeled off of these whales by this e- these evil whale hunters. And you're like, oh God, <laughs> this is awful. So part of the reason this movie works so well as an ensemble comedy is obviously we already know the characters really well. And all the actors have been embodying those characters for decades. They all clearly have really strong feelings. They're really engaged with the material. And they're also really capable of combining drama with just like that light comedy, which is what Star Trek really excels in. And it's wild how different this is from other franchises. Like, we had to talk about this at some point because technically Star Trek is like this big blockbuster franchise. And even aside from the fact that, like, it's not action-focused, it's very strange that, like, other franchises are not kind of following in its wake. They're not kind of trying to borrow the same framework. And also the fact that, like, contemporary Star Trek just really struggles to recapture this in a way that is genuinely mystifying to fans because the current kind of era of TV with Star Trek Discovery, which we did an episode on right when it first premiered, Star Trek Discovery is like the main show that's currently on air, which I've kind of stopped watching for reasons I'll explain in a minute. And then you've got like Picard and you've got like a couple of other spin-offs. There's a new kind of prequel series starting next month, which like has Spock and Uhura and various others. But all of those TV shows are, first of all, they've got like a lot of action and they also focus a great deal on very high pressure dramatics. So it's always like, oh, the whole arc of Star Trek Discovery season is about characters moving really fast towards defeating a supervillain that's going to end the universe. And Obviously, like, lots of people like that show, but to me, I'm like, what's the point of that? Because you're already getting that narrative in a lot of other places. And if I want to watch action, I kind of want to watch something that is action-focused in a sort of expert way, where it's like there's good action choreography and stuff, rather than just, like, we're having a fight scene. And the thing that just frustrated me so much about Star Trek Discovery is, like, they have one of the highest caliber casts in the entire franchise. Like, all of the actors individually are amazing. The characters are really cool, but hardly any screen time was really dedicated to that light character work you see in this. And with Star Trek, by this point in the franchise, the cast kind of had this unprecedented control over the characters. Like, you literally have Leonard Nimoy directing this film, you have Shatner directing the next film, and all of the actors are people who, pretty much for their entire careers after they started in Star Trek, were primarily known for that. Most of them did 
have other acting jobs of varying degrees. I think the person who got off the worst was DeForest Kelly, who played McCoy, because prior to this, he had like a really long career in sort of macho or masculine sort of grizzled black and white movie roles. Like he did loads of classic westerns and that sort of thing. And then after this, he was so typecast as McCoy, he struggled, whereas some of the others, they had more TV work and stuff. But um, during kind of the interim period between the TV show and like the first couple of movies coming out, they were just fucking doing conventions. And like anyone who saw them in the street was like, you're my idol. Like the Star Trek fandom is completely without compare in terms of its intensity at this period. And that led to them all just like identifying so strongly with their characters. And if they'd done a movie where it was just all of them running around trying to shoot people, first of all, it would be just be ridiculous because none of them are action characters and the actors, as we said, are like literally just average looking middle-aged people. It would be like, you're not athletes. But also like people don't want to see that. The reason why this movie is so popular is because it basically serves the function we usually see in fan fiction now, which is a hangout movie where everyone gets a little subplot, a couple of people get a serious emotional arc like Spock, and then everyone else is just having hijinks. And that is delightful. And we need to see more films of this type that do that. And I kind of get the impression that is what Chris Pine and Zachary Quinto would quite like to do with the next Star Trek film. Uh, But it remains to be seen whether that actually happens. (laughs) Unlikely. Yeah, I mean, I have two thoughts. One of which is I think the... I think for the past 15 years, the accelerating need to have every sci-fi fantasy genre story be ultimately about the threat of the world ending has been fatal to these projects, franchises, etc., etc. I remember feeling this way about Doctor Who back when I watched it like 10 plus years ago. It's been a huge problem for the Marvel stuff. It's infected everything. I'm sure we've talked about this before. I think studios, like, it's broken the brains of all of these producers and executives because they don't understand that what is actually compelling to people is small personal human stakes and not the world is going to And, like, utilizing star power. And that doesn't even mean acting. Like, part of the reason why the Fast and Furious franchise is so successful is because it's almost entirely predicated on, like, good action, but also star power. Like, it's literally just all about, like, we love these characters. (laughs) And some of those characters have a personality you could write down on, like, a single line of text. (laughs) (laughs) yeah i've still never seen any of those and i'm happy to let you remain our expert on the podcast but i think it's a huge problem and i think that it's also corroded how action movies get made right because people don't get that what's actually compelling about an action sequence is an individual person's danger. This is why the yeah, Mission Impossible I mean, Impossible that's why Mission Impossible, so literally Mission yeah, Impossible. Exactly. And instead, it's just like a bunch of huge shit blowing up. Oh my God. And like, no one cares. There was a period 10 years ago when there was like half a dozen movies came out that just finished with a pillar of light kind of going in or out of the earth and then like yes. someone fighting the pillar of light. Yeah. And it was like, this is not dramatically good. <laughs> right. I mean, Marvel's obsession with the like colored lights concluding movies it's like it's really it's not good but the audience has also been trained to want and expect that so that's a problem right people love those movies and their their taste has been corroded not that there aren't individual films in that franchise or other big action franchises that are good and entertaining like i like some of them but if everything that you're watching is that then that's what you're going to come to expect so that's a problem 
for all of us. Like, if this movie came out now, everyone would be like, what the fuck? What's going on? Like, it would not be well received by the general public. Critics would like it, but it yeah. wouldn't make I mean, any money. if it was marketed, like, as a comedy, because this is the type of film that, like, if you had, like, a movie version of a really popular comedy, I mean, there's really no comparison because it's not strictly a comedy movie. Like, it's a comedic action-adventure film, and it's of the same kind of elk that you see a lot of in the 80s, you know, in that sort of Spielbergian period. And it's kind of like if you had an Indiana Jones or a Back to the Future and then subtracted 90% of the action scenes and just replaced them with more scenes of middle-aged people tootling around San Francisco. Right. I mean, and obviously the reason that this can succeed at that time is that it has the baked in goodwill of massive numbers of Star Trek fans. Like, my parents were not going to see this movie in 1986. I can guarantee you that that was not happening. The people who were going to see it were Star Trek fans. The budget was $26 million, $5 million of which went to Shatner and Nimoy between them, so 2.5 each. I think they did get paid the same, even though Nimoy literally directed the movie. But, <laughs> but there we go. And then it made $133 million at the box office, because it got, like, really good reviews. It got four... We oscar tech nominations for stuff like music and cinematography and people love it like it's viewed very affectionately and it is fascinating to see a film that is just like the product of an actor who has been thinking very deeply about his character for decades but not so deeply that he wants to make a film that's like hamlet like it's not in that situation it's like what do i think fans are going to want and the answer is an explicit and intentional shift away from action and fighting. Like he literally was like, I don't want anyone to be firing a weapon in this movie, basically. Like I think there is some weapon firing, but he was just like, no phasers, no killing. Uh, And then all of those other actors have that input. And it's like, because they've been having these person to person conversation with fans for decades, which now isn't really available because it's like basically impossible to kind of form that sort of personal relationship between a fan and the object of fandom because the internet makes it far too easy and fandom as a community finds it so much easier to be toxic. Like literally last week during the promo tour for this new Star Trek prequel series, you know, there was like convention where they were kind of announcing some stuff for it. And there was a double micro controversy over like the announced Spock's official full name. And people were like, what are you doing? Because they denounced the name, but it's like one that's already been in canon for decades, but like not official canon. And then Paramount was like, we're withdrawing that. That's like not the real name. And it's like, well, you can't withdraw it because it's already canon to people. So there's like all these like feuds over stuff, which basically doesn't mean anything. And at the same time as that, the actor who plays young Spock asked some innocuous question about Spock's sexuality. And half the people following this on Twitter decided he was being homophobic. And it's like, I'm 100% sure he's not being homophobic. But the fact that like everyone is reacting to stuff that's like a single tweet means that no one is ever going to be in the position of having one of those, you know, 1970s style late night convention bar conversations for three hours with Leonard Nimoy because it's like way too dangerous for the actor's safety. Yeah, people are bad. And if this is also, I mean, obviously, as we know, like people were obsessive fans of stuff before Star Trek, basically since the beginning of time, but the Sherlock Holmes stuff is a famous example. But modern fandom, as we conceive it, basically starts with this show, right? So 
the patterns of behavior that happen after aren't really in place in the same way. And the internet doesn't exist. So the combination of those things make it feel different. But I also think in terms of the movie, I do think part of the weakness of having a situation where the characters are so familiar to the audience by this point is that the secondary characters often in this movie really don't get a lot to do. And um, Uhura and Sulu in particular really don't have very much to do in this movie. And I was kind of like, that's not great. Yeah. You mentioned that he looks great and is cool in this movie, both of which are definitely true. I would estimate that he has maybe five minutes of screen time, if not less. And she basically is just present. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of an issue throughout the entire franchise, right? Because it's like, they do make sure everyone has these individual character moments in this film, but the headliners of all the films are always like the big three and primarily Kirk and Spock. And in a TV show where you're airing like 20 episodes a year or whatever, you can have more episodes that are kind of centered around certain characters, obviously. And in the 60s, like there were less episodes that were focusing on the characters of color, inevitably. And a lot more still that are focusing on Kirk and Spock because they are the protagonists. And in the movies, like unless you make a really quite unexpected like pivot to being like, we're going to have an Uhura-centric movie, which was never going to happen. You're just like kind of stuck in that position. And that means that there's always going to be like several characters are kind of the comic relief. And they still didn't really bother with that. Like in the, in the reboot movies, famously, they are kind of more sexist than like the previous films because they're just like put in everyone in like a miniskirt with no tights and like Kirk's going to be a misogynist now and that sort of thing and it's like no you need to like find a balance in the dramatics of the different roles right and I mean I think it is tricky because of course you want the Kirk and Spock relationship to be central and that is the emotional core of the whole franchise so like they have to be the main characters from just like a practical point of view, like that's what the people want. And while it would be nice to imagine a studio being like, yeah, sure, let's have an Uhura movie in 1986. As you say, obviously that's not just not going to happen. But the amount of time they spend on the love interest woman, who like, I have nothing against this actress. She's perfectly good in the movie. It is not her fault. And the character is actually perfectly well written too, because she's, as you were saying earlier, she's like skeptical enough of this whole situation that it's like kind of believable. And her real motivation for traveling through space and time is that she's really obsessed with whales and not that she's just like madly in love with Kirk, which I found to be acceptable. But um, she gets basically the third most screen time, I would guess. And like, that's not necessary in my opinion. Like, you just don't need to do that. Except that apparently they did because of William Shatner's ego. But that's time that could be divvied up between the regulars, right? In a way that I think would probably have just been, like, more emotionally satisfying. And given those people something to do. I mean, they cut an entire role for Nurse Chapel, who was a very prominent secondary character in the TV series, one of the other like female supporting characters. So she has like a two second cameo in the film and like they filmed a bunch of scenes with her and then just deleted them. And it's like, oh no. She's yeah. played by like a very well-known Star Trek actress because she was Jean Roddenberry, the show's creator. Um, when they first created the show, she was his mistress and I believe they later married. And she was like the nurse 
And she was the original, like, number one, the second in command in the pilot. And then she voiced the computer throughout the whole franchise. So she was, like, voicing the Star Trek computers until the 90s. And uh, she was understandably not impressed by having her role deleted from this movie, especially because all the audience would be like, hey, it's Nurse Chapel. Yeah. I mean, this shit has been going on forever, sadly. And, you know, continues in perpetuity. So it's, it's a bummer. And the fact that the reboot, as you said, was like worse is just like a glaring example of the time and is a flat circle situation. Also, fucking love that cast. People love the Star Trek reboot cast, even though one point five of those movies were no good. <laughs> but the cast <laughs> themselves are like really charming, and you can imagine fun stuff happening with them. So I kind of do hope they make another one. It seems like they definitely will, because Paramount is like, we want content now. I mean, they announced that there was going to be a new Star Trek movie without informing the cast members. So... Yes. <laughs> Zachary Quinto was, like, issuing statements to Entertainment Weekly being like, um, they didn't tell us. <laughs> Where is my check? I'm sure they were aware, but obviously... Oh, like, yeah. None of I the... mean, there's been negotiations over this for ages, because, like, for the past... Right six or seven years like there's been a bunch of ideas including this unbelievably stupid sounding tarantino film which was going to be like an r-rated gangster drama with like blood and sex which is like no one wants that but one of the kind of more prominent ones was going to be they'd reinsert kirk's dad played by chris hemsworth for like five minutes in the first movie so they could have like a time travel movie that was all about kirk and his dad which is an abysmal idea because although all Hollywood movies have to be about daddy issues because all Gen X men have daddy issues. That has never been an element of Kirk's life. In the whole original series, Kirk's backstory is basically like he had just a chill, supportive upbringing, like a normal family in Iowa. And his big tragic backstory element is that as a kind of teenager, he was on a farming colony, basically like on a gap year in junior high or whatever, where there was this massive famine and he was caught in a famine that was controlled by this fascist guy who wanted to kill off half the population. And that is like a really interesting and politically relevant and like psychologically intense and traumatic thing to have in his backstory, which is why it's in like every fucking fan fiction. <laughs> but instead they were like, what if they just like bring back his blonde dad? Cause we know Chris Hemsworth has star power. And it's like, I don't want to see that. So here's hoping they make one with like no Hemsworth, much as I love a Hemsworth. Well, also, I find Chris Pine very endearing and entertaining as an individual. I do not think he is a great actor, as our episode on the fucking Scottish history movie that I do not remember <laughs> the title of. I, it's just I called, like, The King, The Man. <laughs> I think he's so awful in that movie. But I think he can be very charming and, like, enjoyable as, like, a chill, entertaining He's presence. wonderfully charismatic and has great, just, like, physicality and is really good at being attractive. He's more of a star presence yeah. than an actor, to your earlier point. And Zachary Quinto is very good. And, like, the sort of lower down the cast list people are great. I mean, they literally have John Cho. <laughs> yes. But that seems like a better recipe for a movie. Again, this will never happen. But that seems like a better recipe for a sort of chill movie. And that's not what's going to happen because they're all terrified of Marvel. And that's now the, like, blueprint for all of these things. 
So I assume there's going to be a threat to the universe in yeah. the next film that will have Even to be solved Even though Chris Pine somehow. is literally out there giving interviews like, I think we should make it with a lower budget. <laughs> right? It's like he's literally just going out there with that. <laughs> no one listens to the actors anymore. So they could all just get together and make like a Star Trek ripoff movie. That's yeah. not officially Star Trek. They should. Where they have like similar names, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, during the pandemic, a couple of the Star Trek DS9 actors just went on YouTube and started acting out made up scenes. And it was like, Godspeed to you. <laughs> <laughs> That's a level of like deeply embedded in a character that I really I mean, can't this was, fathom. you'll have heard of one of them because one of them was Alexander Siddig. <laughs> Whom I saw in a restaurant in Brooklyn once. I was there with our mutual friend and your collaborator, Elizabeth. And we sat there and we the whole evening we were like, who is that? Like, <laughs> I know who that man is. Who is this small, beautiful, aging man? <laughs> and then as we were leaving, I was like, I know who it is. On a final note, before we wrap up, my favorite piece of trivia from this film is the punk on the bus scene where Kirk and Spock are on the bus and they're confronted by a punk who's listening to noisy music. And this character is played by Kirk Thatcher, who was Nimoy's longtime personal assistant. Prior to this, he was a special effects guy at ILM, Industrial Light and Magic. When he was like a teenager, he was a pretty young guy. And he had like a really close relationship with Nimoy for years. He kind of viewed him as a sort of uncle figure. And there's a great interview with him on StarTrek.com where he just sort of talks about working on this movie and, you know, he was just like, please, can I play the punk? And Nimoy was like, okay, I'll give you the punk role. So, like, he got his hair cut. And then, because, like, obviously when you film this sort of scene, there's no music. And the way he was, like, nodding his head, the music supervisors were giving him all this, like, pop music, like Duran Duran. And he was like, we can't have Duran Duran. It's got to be a punk song. So he went home, wrote and recorded a punk song, because he was also a musician. <laughs> so that song is, like, on the soundtrack to this movie as, like, his punk song. And also because he was like on set all the time, he had like a bit of kind of script editing work. So he wrote one of the gags, which is the scene where Scotty doesn't know how to use a computer mouse and tries to talk into a computer mouse. So that is by Kirk Thatcher, Punk on the Bus, who is now a sort of a Muppets guy, I believe. That is wonderful. Great guy. I think in the new Picard show, which I'm not up to date with yet, but they time travel in the new Picard show and apparently he returns to play an elderly punk. <laughs> uh, oh, love it. Delightful. Yes. All right. Well, I think that wraps up our little Star Trek jaunt for the day. Thanks again to Lee for requesting this movie. I found it very enjoyable. And yeah, Nimoy's great in this film also, we should say. Yes. Clearly He's like a serious amazing. actor. Yeah. You know. So it's very, very fun. And uh, next week, we will be talking about the internet sensation du jour. Gavia, would you like to give a little preview? Yes, we are going to talk about Our Flag Means Death, which is a 10-episode sitcom rom-com series about 18th century pirates. It is available on HBO Max. It is created by David Jenkins, who is probably not a name you will know, but more prominently, the lead roles are played by Taika Waititi, who directs part of it, who plays Blackbeard, the legendary pirate, and Reese Darby, who plays the slightly less legendary, but still well-known to pirate <laughs> aficionados, Steed Bonnet. And it's a kind of odd couple partnership where Blackbeard is obviously this infamous, dangerous figure. And Steed Bonnet, as a historical figure, was just this 
eccentric rich guy who decided he wanted to be a pirate because obviously at this period pirates were already celebrities so he like spent all his money on like going off to be a pirate and he was of course completely incompetent but for the sake of this show it is about Steve Bonnet who's just like a charmingly naive toff and then he meets up with Blackbeard who is having a midlife crisis because he's like I hate being this evil violent man I just want to retire and so they kind of do a swapsy where Steve Bonnet is like I'll teach you to be an aristocrat if you teach me how to be a fearsome pirate. And crucially, in addition to that being a really fun dynamic, it has an extraordinarily good supporting cast of like pirate characters. And it's got an extremely queer cast as well. There are several like queer couples, there's a non-binary character in a, in a lead role, and there's like several non-binary and queer writers behind the camera. And it's just super fun and really smart and has like a really great combination of light comedy and really simple but well-drawn drama that's quite kind of insightful about the role of pirates as public figures and stuff so it's so good and I am obviously the world's hugest fan of Black Sails and that made me extremely suspicious of this show like how dare you be the new Black Sails and obviously (laughs) it's not because it's a completely different genre but it kind of covers some of the same thematic territory but in a way that feels really fresh and fun because the tone is still super different and um, it's just extremely delightful and I've had a lot of fun watching and analyzing it over the past couple of weeks. And I binged it all this weekend and I enjoyed it a lot. I am not as maniacally enthusiastic as I think you or many people on the internet, but I thought it was very fun and I thought Taika Waititi was great in it. He's so good. I was like, he should act more. Yeah. He looks hot. He's wearing this, like, huge fake beard and wig that looks super real and also make him, like, they're really good-looking long beard and wig, which is not really something I've ever thought about before, but I'm like, it's a hot beard. (laughs) I was, the entire time, like, look, I love to watch a movie or a television show with a hot man, but rarely am I this much like, this man is hot and I will click the next episode because I would like (laughs) to watch more of this hot man. Like, he is looking great. And it's a sitcom where he's wearing, like, leather biker gear on the world's fakest ship. Like, this this show has making no illusions about this all being filmed, like, in a box. Oh, yeah, it's completely, yeah. I mean, we'll talk about how... I mean, it's a Knight's Tale situation, clearly. But But tune in next week for an extremely positive review slash analysis of this sitcom and tell your friends, because I know that a lot of people are watching this show right now. Yeah. So that's next week. If you would like to support us slash request an episode like this one um, on a film of your choice, you can do that at patreon.com slash overinvested podcast. We also greatly appreciate ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you use. Um, A five-star rating or review is especially helpful in terms of visibility. And Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on The Daily Dot, where I'm going to be writing about Our Flag Means Death in depth. And you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And you can find my work on Bustle. I just did an interview with the author Kate Folk, who just had her first book come out, which is kind of like a literary comedy body horror type of short story collection that I think probably a lot of our readers would like. I thought it was great. So um, you can find that over there. And I am on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at Overinvested Pod. We are on Tumblr at Overinvested Podcast. And our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.